lives. We're looking tonight at the words of verse 8. Psalm 95 and verse 8. Harden not your heart. As in the provocation. And as in the day of temptation. In the wilderness. Harden not your heart. This lovely psalm, it opens with some tremendous exhortations, invitations for people to come and to worship. And to worship God. I love the, the, the metrical version of Psalm 95. And yes, we've sung it here pretty often. Oh, come and let us to the Lord with songs our voices raise. With joyful noise let us the rock of our salvation praise. We're directed to come before God's presence. With praise and with thanksgiving. We're to sing psalms. Verse 3 tells us why. Because Jehovah is a great God. And a great king above all gods. Verse 4 and 5. As creator we, we learn here again. That everything is in his hand. And we are in his hands. And then verse 6. We're to come humbly. We're to bow down. We're to kneel before our maker. You know, when we worship God aright, we, we know what we are. We know ourselves to be nothing in his presence. We come as needy supplicants. So much of modern worship today is the exaltation of self. But biblical worship is the dethronement of self. It's coming and recognizing who we are as absolute nobodies and nothings in the sight of Almighty God. One of those endearing reasons why we come to worship God is given in verse 7. Because we are his sheep and the flock of his pasture. Jehovah has in covenant chosen us to be his flock. That's a wonderful thought in and of itself. We have been chosen to be part of the flock of the Almighty. He's our shepherd. We are his blood washed sheep. We're part of his fold and his family. And these are all of the encouragements that we, we meet with in these opening verses to come and to worship the Lord and to bow down before him and to come low before him and yet with thankfulness and with hearts that are full of praise and worship and adoration. Verse 8 is in contrast with what has gone before. And verse 8 forces us to examine uh, the reason why some do not worship aright. Because not everyone who comes to worship will worship God aright. They cannot sing unto Jehovah. They cannot make a joyful noise to the rock of their salvation. They refuse to bow down and to kneel before the Lord their maker. Why? Because they have hard hearts. Verse 8 tells us they have hard hearts. The Bible uses the heart as not just a, 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 a physical organ of the body, but the Bible uses the heart to signify the soul, to signify the whole being of the individual and all the faculties of the soul. The Lord Jesus used this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. By the mind is meant the understanding. We understand with the mind. That's how we worship. There, 
there's so much today in modern worship and it bypasses the mind. And we have all of the aesthetics, we have all of the, the beauty, we have all of the drama. And it appeals to the emotion and it bypasses the mind. But God works through the faculty of the mind. He also works through the will, which is the soul. And he also works through the heart, which is the affection. So when you put all of that together, we learn something of what it is to harden the heart. It's to be stubborn. It's to stiffen up in resistance against Almighty God. And I can think of no greater tragedy than to come actually to worship, but not to worship because of what you bring with you. And what you bring with you is with your heart. And there are many tonight right across Ulster and there'll be an evangelical services such as this. <clears throat> and they come with hearts that are stiffened and they come with hearts that are resistant to the gospel and they will not bow down and they will not worship. The greatest hindrance to the gospel, the greatest hindrance to your acceptance of Christ is your hard heart. This warning against hardening the heart against the gospel is a matter of great importance because the Bible tells us, <coughs> and we'll come to it this evening, that it will rob you of rest and time and rest and eternity. Could there be anything more important? So let's look at this hardening of the heart, this gospel hardening of the heart to the gospel. Uh, let's consider, first of all, uh, the, the several types of hard hearts. There, there are different types of hard hearts. We're not all the same. And people come from, from different backgrounds, with different issues, with different, with different uh, peculiarities. There is what we'll call natural hard-heartedness. I think in Ulster we're used with that type of phraseology. Somebody's naturally hard-hearted. But I have news for all of you. We're all naturally hard-hearted. All of us are naturally hard-hearted. Secular society likes to say we're all basically good. And that's what the world says today. We're all just basically good. But of course that statement doesn't define goodness, does it? If we get to the definition of goodness, it might be something very different. But the scripture paints a very different picture. We're not all basically good. What are we? Well, let's go to some scriptures. Let, just let me read them to you. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable work. There is none that doeth good. Now that cuts across all of the, the modern philosophy, doesn't it? That we're all basically good. The Bible says there's none that doeth good. It goes further. They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good as God defines goodness. That's where the line of differentiation is drawn. No, not one. Paul took this up in Romans chapter 3 and verse 12. And he said, they're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So please do not swallow the modern ideology that tells you we're all basically good. The Bible is something very different to say. When we measure our goodness by the goodness of God, there's none that doeth good. 
No, not one. If you want to trace the reason for this lack of, of goodness, we need to go back again to where it all starts, of course, in the book of Genesis. All of these great doctrines, they'll all go back to the book of Genesis. Every time, they'll go back to the book of Genesis. And the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, into sin. And as a result of their sin, every human being ever born since is born with a fallen, corrupt nature that lacks original goodness. And that's what the theologians call original sin. This is not, this is not primarily a reference to the first sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is rather the result of it. This is the corruption of the, the total mass of humanity. All humanity corrupted by Adam and Eve's fall. That lack of original goodness. We do not become sinners because <coughs> how rough life is to us. And because of the, the knocks and bumps that life gives to us. And because of the opposition that we face along the journey of life. We, we are what we are. We lack original goodness. We're born with original sin because we were born in sin. We take you back to our own confession of faith. Chapter 6, section 4. I was looking this up yesterday and again I was taken aback just by the starkness of the, of the wording of it. It said from this, or, from this original corruption. So instead of original goodness, what do we have? We have original corruption. Whereby we're utterly indisposed. We're disabled. We're made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. And from all of this do proceed all actual transgressions. Where does sin come from? Well, sin comes from our original corruption. Sin comes from all that is opposite to good within us. All of those actual transgressions. The heart of fallen man, the Bible teaches us, it's indisposed, it's disabled, it's made opposite to all that is good when we measure it with Almighty God. Now that does not sit well <coughs> with much of evangelical theology today. But that's the theology of our forefathers. We're sinners, as one put it. Not because we're sin, but rather because we're sinners. The heart is deceitful, Jeremiah said. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not just wicked, but desperately wicked. Here we are all in our Sunday best. And God looks in. And this is the scriptural insight that he gives to us of our hearts. That's why, brethren and sisters, we ought to come so lowly, humbly into the worship of God, into the presence of God. Because God sees what we are on the inside. What we lack. All that goodness that the world talks about is peripheral. We lack the goodness of God. But what we do have is original sin. Of course this can be looked at from another angle. This hard heartedness. And we'll have to speak to you a little minute or two. About habitual hard heartedness. Habits are easily formed. 
how quickly simple actions can become habitual in all of our lives. That first glass of wine, it was very innocent and it was enjoyable. But that first glass of wine became a habit. And the habit took over the life. And the habit became addiction in the life and destructive in the life. And just little steps very quickly in and of themselves, they can seem very innocent and very insignificant, but they can become habitual, they can become addictive, they can become destructive. It is sobering for us all just to think for a little moment that none of us by ourselves can soften our own hearts. Sometimes that's said, you know, you, you need to just to loosen up, you need to soften up. Sinners cannot soften their own hearts. You cannot soften your heart. But the further you go on without Christ, the harder your heart becomes to the things of God. So rather than leaving it for tonight and saying, I'll just leave it for a while, the more you leave it, the harder it comes to come to Christ because the harder the heart comes becomes to the things of Christ. I was speaking to our brother Noel who's engaged in outreach in that area. He's doing the mission in outside Macrofelt and he, he told me he met this old man on the roadside. man well into his 80s. Started to share the gospel to him and Noel asked him, well, are you saved? Because he, he did go to a gospel preaching church and he said to no, no, not yet. Not yet after 80 years. Not yet. Why? Because the heart was totally hardened and had become even more harder to the things of the Lord. This habitual practice is sometimes uh, noted here in, in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews chapter 3. It's referred to as the provocation as in the days of temptation in the wilderness. I was looking up this phrase, and Albert Barnes, uh, on his commentary, helped me to understand it. He said, the provocation literally means the embittering. So what was it? It was the actions of the children of Israel in the wilderness, and it was their embittering of God. That's what it's a reference to. They embittered the mind of God against them. In the day of temptation that's referred to here, the word day, of course, it can denote not just a 24-hour period, but it can denote an indefinite period or time in general. And the word temptation here re refers to all of those various temptations that the children of Israel embittered God by throughout the 40 years wilderness a pilgrimage from Egypt to Canaan. There are many examples of their provocation. Remember how they demanded bread at sin. The want of water at Meribah, at Sinai with the golden calf, at Taberah for want of flesh, at Kadesh Barnea when they came to the very borders of the promised land and they refused to go in. They've been 30 years coming, 38 years getting to that point and they refused to come in. Children of Israel habitually hardened their hearts. Now let me ask you, let me ask you the question tonight. How long have you been hardening your heart for? How many months, how many years, how many hours, how many seconds have you been habitually 
Harden your heart to the gospel and the things of God. Here's a clear admonition. Harden not your heart. And the illustration is back to the wanderings of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Harden not your heart. That's what I say to the young people and the boys and girls in the meeting. Do not go on. Do not go on even for a day longer in sin without the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I will tell you, dear boys and girls, uh, the further you go, the harder it is to turn back and to turn to the Lord. And the harder the heart becomes. There's not this just the habitual hardening. There is what the Bible talks about, judicial hardening. This is a judgment of God. This happens when God in judgment hardens an already hard heart. So what happens in this instance? Well, they're given over. They're given over to judgment before the great day of judgment itself. And there are illustrations that are given to us in the word of God. If you go back just to the book of Exodus, the one uh, capital illustration, of course, is Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 14, verse 4, we read about Pharaoh. God was talking about the last plague that was going to befall the land. And, and he was talking about how he was going to destroy Pharaoh in the aftermath of it. And uh, the children of Israel had, uh, had come up out of Egypt and Pharaoh and his hosts were following them. And he said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Here was Pharaoh and 600 chariots coming behind him. They were coming to take back the slave people back to Egypt once again. And God opened up the Red Sea. And the Israelites went down into the Red Sea. And God so hardened the heart of Pharaoh that though he knew it was military folly to do what he did, his heart was so hard he followed those children of Israel down into the, the bed of the Red Sea. We read in verse 17 about it too. And behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, and upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. That's a judicial hardening. They were given over before the day of judgment actually dawned. They were damned before they went into that riverbed, to that seabed. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 6 and 6, we have a reference to this uh, historical incident. And Samuel said, Wherefore then do ye harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaohs hardened their hearts? It was remembered all of those years later. There are many examples in the New Testament. Romans 2 and verse 5, Paul uses this. And he says, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasure is up unto thyself, wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Just like Pharaoh and the hosts that came behind him in their mad sin and in, in their haste to destruction. There are many today, they are so hard in their heart against the things of God and against the gospel of Christ that they rush to the judgment. They rush to destruction. They're oblivious to what's going on round about them. They're just so hard-hearted and hard-headed. Why? Because God, God has given them over. 
Well, I believe there are ones in our land and they've been given over. Our land is full of hard-hearted people to the gospel. And sometimes people nearly want to, to boast about how big they are in front of God. They're not afraid to meet God. They're not afraid to face God. They're not afraid, afraid to answer to God. Harden not your heart. Rather than boast of such a heart, you should cry over it. Weep over it. Lament over it. When the gospel no longer touches your heart, Christian, you better examine your heart. I want to notice with you secondly, what's the evidence of this hard-heartedness? How do we see it? How do we observe it? Let me try to summarize it under some headings for you. The first one I'll give you is insensibility. A hard heart is evidence where the conscience is insensible to the truth. The, the voice of God through the word no longer touches the heart. As, as we say, it's like water of a duck's back. That person effectively has their conscience so seared that nothing will penetrate the, the conscience. And they can continue on the road to hell regardless and heedless. The Bible tells us in the last days, these gospel days, that some will depart from the faith. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Why? Because they will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We looked at that in Matthew 7 over the past weeks because false prophets produce false converts. And they will listen to the lie of the devil before they listen to the voice of God. Because they have their conscience seared with a hot iron. When the conscience is seared, it's hardened. It's past feeling. There's no regard for anything, anything any longer. People can live as they please. They can do as they want. They can speak as they want. And I just think it's an awful situation when the law of God no longer speaks into our souls. Insensibility. But what about apathy? Our forefathers put a great stress on preaching. And I hope that will always be where the stress is in Analog, on the preaching of the word of God. I'm glad to see people out to hear preaching. <clears throat> that you haven't come for some sort of uh, flippant entertainment celebration, whatever the, 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 the buzzwords at the the modern church puts upon it. We're here to, to preach the word. But we're also here to listen to the word. And preaching is not a spectator activity. In the larger catechism. We looked at that in our Bible study over a few weeks ago. Uh, the, the word is to be listened to diligently. Faithfully. Prayerfully. Carefully. Intellectually. Spiritually. All the faculties are to, are to be at their best for God. Uh, we, we need to sweep out the apathy. We need to sweep out the indifference. And today we have to lament across the broad evangelical church. We are plagued with apathy. To worship God aright, the word has to speak personally, individually. And what a grand thing it is when God speaks to us from his word. I would prefer God to chastise me from this word than to say nothing to me from this word. 
Let him take the rod and put it on my back, but don't let him cease to speak to me from the word of God. What about the obstinacy of the hard heart? You know, the sinner is not just passively uh, opposed to the gospel. The sinner is actively opposed to the gospel. Obstinately, men and women refuse to listen to the gospel of amazing grace. Positively, they, they, they make up their mind that they're going to refuse the message. And you will do that tonight. You will either accept the message or positively in your mind you will refuse the message. And you will have done that before you cross the threshold. Directly, they resist the workings of the Spirit of God. We thought in the catechism this morning that it's the Holy Spirit who applies redemption. So it's the work of the Spirit to, to, to speak to hearts, to soften hearts, to teach hearts, to guide hearts. But it's the work of the sinful heart to resist it. And that heart that thus resists it eagerly will plunge into deeper sin. Why? To drown out the message. Addiction is an awful thing, no matter what the addiction is. But a lot of addiction is fueled by the desire to crowd out the voice of conscience. And that puts that person into even a, a more dangerous place. Don't be obstinate tonight. Don't be hard-hearted. Harden not your heart. I want to close with you tonight by considering, well, what's the, the, the remedy for the spiritual hardening of the heart? Well, we'll come back to basics. I, I think we should never leave the basics. And it's the gospel of grace alone that has the answer. If, as we know, we cannot soften our hard hearts and by a continuance in it, we only further harden them, uh, the only answer is found in divine intervention, and that's amazing grace. In the aftermath of the wilderness wanderings and the children of Israel, you know what Moses said to them? Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, before they, they entered into the promised land, he said, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto our fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh and of Egypt. They weren't saved because they were better than the Egyptians. They were saved because God chose them, put his love upon them. We read those challenging words in Romans 9, 15, 16. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Hard hearts need God's mercy. Hard hearts need God's divine intervention. We read, Paul took this up in 2 Timothy 1 and 9. He said, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. The grace 
Well, Jesus, give us an election before the world began. We sang during lockdown many times the words of Isaac, what's lovely hymn? And uh, I, I so loved that hymn that I got in contact with the new hymn book committee in our presbytery. And they promised me that they would include it in the new hymn book. And I am assured that even the first day music of that new hymn book will be ready before Christmas this year. So Isaac Watts wrote these tremendous words. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? While thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. This is grace. God's love is unconditional love to sinners. It's a wonderful message to proclaim. He didn't love us men and women because we were lovable but he loved us because he's a God of grace and mercy and of infinite compassion. In the life and death and resurrection of his dear son, the Bible teaches us that he hath brought life and immortality to light. Jesus came and he lived the life we should have lived but couldn't live. He lived a perfect life. It's amazing. He never said a wrong word. He never did a wrong deed. There was never even a wrong thought crossed his mind. The perfect man fulfilled the law of God in every part on your behalf and my behalf. But he also died to satisfy the wrath of the law of God because the law said the soul that sinneth it shall die. God provided the lamb and the lamb for sinners slain was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he died in your stead and in my stead. And his precious blood was shed that your sinful hardened heart might be cleansed and made ready for heaven. And in the gospel, in the gospel, it's God that gives the power to become the sons of God. That's amazing grace. And it's a mystery I can't explain but I can proclaim the amazing grace of God. And it's in this wonderful mystery of the gospel that he comes and gives us a new heart. A new heart that responds to the call of the gospel and enables us to follow on to know the Lord. It's a message. Verse 7 tells us requires a response. Today, Today, if ye will hear his voice, you've heard his voice. You've heard his voice today, but it's not been the first day you've heard his voice. But you've heard his voice today, and I'm glad that God always speaks in the present tense. He's right up to date. God's up to date with where you are. He's speaking to you today. And today is your time. It's your time to repent and to receive salvation. And I urge you, don't miss your day. 
Don't miss your time. And if you miss your time, there might be another day. And your day will not last forever. I read just a few mornings ago uh, those words in Isaiah 46 and 7, and I thought about them. All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. You know, when I come back, I twan along from Kenya just a few weeks ago. The grass all around the, the manse was green and lush. And you know, I thought to myself, how am I going to keep up cutting that over the next few months? But today it's all brown. All around the edges, withering and dying. Its season was very, very short. Your season doesn't last long. The summer season does not last long. And the remedy for you will not be any easier tomorrow than it is today. It will be as difficult tomorrow. I'll say more difficult tomorrow to come to Christ than it is today. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. And if God spares you to tomorrow, your heart will be even more hard. To, it'll be even harder tomorrow than it is today. And that's why God has this set appointment for you to come tonight. Here in this gospel meeting. When God sends out the invitation, he's always ready to receive those that are invited. No one ever got the gospel invitation and came to the door of mercy and were turned away. And those who do come upon hearing the voice, they are, they are assured at the end of Psalm 95 that they will enter in. They will enter into my rest. I take great encouragement from that little verse in Psalm 95 and verse 11. There is a rest for the people of God. One day we're going to rest from our labors. This whole psalm is about the pilgrimage. One day the pilgrimage is going to be over. One day we'll not worry about a hardened heart anymore. We'll enter in. We'll have rest. Rest forevermore. Rest with the Lord Jesus. Shut out. Will be all the sin that we battled with here. Shut out will be all the enemies. Shut out will be all the opposition. Will be... Entering in with Jesus to that eternal rest. And he says simply to you tonight, will you come? Will you embrace and accept that invitation? And if you do, I, I promise you in the assurance of God's word, you can enter into that rest tonight. Don't wait till tomorrow. It is not going to get easier. It is going to get harder. The Spirit of God says, now. Now's the accepted time. Now's the day of God's salvation. Hardening the heart. It is amazing in gospel meetings like this, right up and down the length and breadth of our land tonight, hearts are going to be hardened. But I'm glad also hearts are going to be changed and softened and brought to the Saviour. 
I pray that it will be such a night for you this evening. And that with that heart and soul, you will cry to the Lord for mercy and grace and pardon and find it in simple faith and believing on Jesus. Let's unite in prayer, please, our time is